Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This Christmas season, we invite you to look deeper into the incredible covenants God made with His people in Scripture. Tune into our current series, Gift Wrapped, From Longing to Lavish, to discover God's unwavering promises to meet the ultimate longings of our heart and ultimately renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Okay, we are in Romans chapter 8. I hope you're following along in your Bibles, your devices, because you just are going to want to do that. So Romans 8, let's go to our God in heaven uh, in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for that incredible time we've already had in song. Wow. Wow. Thank you, God. Father, I pray that tonight we would be agents of light. Pray that each one of us would not see this day selfishly. But Father, I pray that we would be uh, a light in our neighborhood and to the people that you send us to, that we may connect with them, Lord, and and begin to get to know some of them, Lord, and and, and just be able to, to be representatives of Christ in their lives. So Father, you are so good to us. Why should you be so kind to us, your people, God, so generous to give us the gift of assembling together to worship you by means of your word, a word that we esteem as your truth in a world of chaos and deception, a word that we hold as your salvation in a world without grace and without healing. So, Father, come and comfort us by your word. Mold us by your word. Rebuke us where needed, Father, by that same word. Father, strengthen us by your word. Come do dozens of things that you alone can do in this precious hour. We love you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The word of the Lord. So we begin part two of our journey through the middle section of Romans, and we're calling it Unstoppable. Bound by his love, freed by his spirit. Many have called chapter 8 the brightest side of the diamond. That is Romans. Romans 8 showcases the unstoppable force of the gospel and its ability to give life, crush our spiritual enemies, assure us of sweet salvation, and set our hearts at peace. No storm can drown us. 
No attack can derail us. No foe can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The gospel that's been delivered to us and we've received is unstoppable. Now, Romans 8 continues the argument that Paul began tracing in chapter 5, but it most surely takes a turn because remember where the emphasis has been, a deep dive into that no man's land of death, sin, and law where things are confusing and sin uses law to drag us farther into sin and we feel wretched. Paul has taken his time to draw out the contrast between Adam and and Christ, slavery and freedom, law and grace, sin and righteousness and death and life. But now he most surely for the most part moves away from that no man's land and camps out in the wonderland where Christ and the spirit and life and the love of God and our ultimate assurance fill the landscape. When my family lived in Florida, near Orlando, for the first couple of years, we had yearly passes to Disney, and we went a lot. I mean, in the middle of the week, and I would just get the kids in the car and drive down to the parks, be back home by lunch. I mean, it was not your average park outing. And I remember that as we would drive down Osceola Parkway, which takes you into Disney World, uh, as, we, as soon as we got to the park, there was this big, colorful, overhead sign that you couldn't miss with Mickey on the left and Minnie on the right and palm trees behind them. And the sign said, Walt Disney World, the most magical place on earth. And as soon as I remember, as soon as the kids saw that sign, they would go ballistic, including the adult kids in the car. I mean, we're all like, we're here, we're here. And we'd be pointing at Minnie and pointing at Mickey, which was like, come on, people. We've been here so many times before. But it never got old. It never got old. Romans 8 verse 1 is like that sign. It ushers us away from the no man's land of death, sin, and law, and into the wonderland of Christ, the spirit, and life with a big splash, such a big splash that it makes Disney look lame. And what does that big colorful banner of Romans 8 say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's just the entrance sign. The rest of the chapter is the park itself. Now, let me ask you something, and please think about this for your own life. Did you get down this past week at any point? Did you get down this past week at any point? Maybe because your football team lost? Okay, Spartans, go ahead and gloat. We know you're dying to do it. But did you get down at any point, maybe because you gained a few pounds, or maybe that item that you really want is back-ordered, or because of things that really do matter? But did you get down at any point? See, Romans 8.1 is here for that very reason, because it's going to be hard for you to be pondering, truly pondering what Romans 8.1 says, and easily get down in life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation at all. Um, man, this is so rich. What does that mean, no condemnation? It means that your guilt 
and shame and depression and hopelessness because you are a horrible person or because of the horrible things you've done or that have been done to you are misplaced emotions. Misplaced emotions, they should be replaced with relief, joy, praise, thanksgiving. Why? Because nothing counts against you. Your debt of sin to God has been canceled. It's been paid. No attack of the evil one can stick against you. The divine judge has issued a verdict over your life, and the verdict is good. It's like this. After you die, you will stand before God and give an account for your life. And God will say to you, if you belong to Christ, no condemnation. And at that point, you may stand there in disbelief as your sin just flashes before your eyes. But then God will say it again. There is no condemnation for my children who are in Christ Jesus. Now that's amazing in and of itself, but that's not all. See, the great thing about the gospel is that you, if you belong to Christ, you don't have to wait until you die, until you stand before God to know the verdict. The verdict has been brought forward into the present so that you already know there will be no surprises on that day. And the verdict is good. Now, some of you have not heard me. I've been preaching to you for almost six years and your life has not changed. And I really, really want you to internalize this. Imagine a college student that wants to get into Harvard Law. He knows how competitive it is. And so for the four years of his undergrad, he frets with every quiz and grade and class and professor and essay. We're talking hundreds of assignments that, that, that test his skill and his fitness for this task. And every time he submits an assignment, he anxiously awaits the grade. And when the grade comes back below a 4.0, he's hard on himself. He can't even enjoy the process of learning because he's constantly worrying, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Now imagine the same student, same end goal, but on the first day of his freshman year of college, he gets a letter from the Harvard Law School that says, congratulations, you've been accepted into our program. We look forward to seeing you in four years. Imagine the relief. See, the letter is saying, you don't have to prove anything to us. We want you already. You're in. And that's what Romans 8, 1 says. You're in. You've been acquitted. You have nothing to worry about. Judgment day for you in Christ won't be a trial. It will be an award ceremony. All because you're in Christ. All because you're not in Adam, you're not in the flesh, you're in a new realm, you're in a new location, and our new location removes our condemnation. Our new location removes our condemnation. Listen to me. More than an ideal to strive for, victory in the Christian life comes from believing and knowing that you belong in God's kingdom. And although that kingdom is spiritual, it's not a physical land we've entered, yet it is a realm. It is a location. You are in Christ, not in Adam. You are in the spirit, 
not in the flesh. And so we're going to look at three things that make true this big, colorful, overhead banner of no condemnation. First, in Christ, the Spirit frees us. In Christ, the Spirit frees us. Are you guys excited? Christina, are you excited? Yes. Julian, are you excited? Yes, here we go. And I don't want you to miss one word of what Romans 8 has for you. Here we go, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now the presence of God's spirit in the Christian, in the church cannot be overstated. It is far too easy for many Christians to go through life unaware of the presence of God's spirit in their lives. In the gospel of John, on the eve of his death, Jesus says to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus blew his disciples away saying something that none of them were thinking, that it was good for them, for him to leave them. And the disciples are like, what do you mean you're leaving us? We need you right here with us. You have the plan. You have the power. You have the miracles. We're nothing without you. But Jesus says, no, it is to your advantage that I go away. Why? Because if I do not go, the helper will not come. But if I do go, I will send him to you. You see, the mission of Jesus from the Father was to descend to earth, walk among us, show us the Father, die for our sins, burst from the grave three days later, make himself known to the disciples for 40 days and then ascend back to the Father. And in doing that, he was launching the kingdom of God on earth. But the mission of Jesus was never to descend to earth and stay. But he says to the disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. This is John 14. He says, I will ask the Father and he will send you another helper who will be with you forever. You see? And so as Jesus completes his mission and ascends back to the Father, he can then send the Spirit upon his people, upon everyone who turns to Christ in faith, and that Holy Spirit begins to apply all the benefits of a Christ achieved on the cross, all the benefits of our redemption. Think about it. Without the payment for sin, without the conquering of death, without the fulfillment of the righteous requirements of the law, death, sin, and law, all of which Jesus took care of here on earth, there was no salvation for the Spirit of God to go forth into the world and apply to any human heart. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Look at verse 2. Because the spirit of life has set you free. The spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. The spirit is simply applying, making real all that Christ achieved for us to everyone who turns to Christ in faith. If a vaccine is developed in a lab at great cost to the company, at great cost to the scientist, and said vaccine saves lives, from a deadly virus, but all the vaccine doses remain in storage, no one gets saved, no one gets helped. A whole campaign and army must be mobilized for that vaccine to reach every individual. 
That's what the Spirit of God does. It takes what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in the tomb, his forever defeat of sin and death, and applies it. Applies it to the heart of every person that turns to Christ in faith. You're not 2,000 years removed from Jesus' victory. The Spirit of God makes that victory as real to you and for you today as if Jesus died and rose again just this past week. The Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so in Christ, the Spirit frees us. In Christ, God condemns sin. And that's next. God condemns sin. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, this verse is one of the clearest, most mind-bending explanations of the atonement, of the genius of God, but also the love of God in sending Jesus. Now remember some of what we've been learning from Paul about sin. Sin entered the world through Adam and death through sin. And from the time of Adam until the time of the giving of the law, however many, many years, sin was in the world, but humanity was not aware of it. They were aware of their wrongdoing to varying degrees, but not convicted of sin. Because remember what Paul has told us. It's through the law that knowledge of sin comes. And so then God brings the law through Moses to Israel. A law that promised life. But as we've seen in just about every page of the Old Testament, a law that actually delivered death. Not because there was anything wrong with the law, but because remember what we've learned, sin used the law to drag Israel deeper into sin. Remember, it's through the law that sin becomes utterly sinful. It's through the law that sin becomes sinful beyond measure so that as the history of Israel moved forward, their morality and spiritual faithfulness actually went backward. They plunged into utter lawlessness and sinfulness. Now, how can this be? How can this be? You know, have God's plans failed? Has God's plan for the salvation of his creation failed? If, if, if Israel is to be the light of the world, but instead they produce darkness. If sin is humanity's biggest problem, but in Israel, sin grew up through the law. Have God's plans for the salvation of humanity failed? And the answer is no, by no means. You see, God was doing two things at the same time. Through the law, sin grew up in Israel into a full-fledged sin monster. But also through Israel, God was filling up the world with promises of his holiness and love and deliverance. And so the world was bursting with the fullness of sin in Israel to say nothing of the rest of the nations. And the world was bursting with the fullness of God's promised deliverance. And so how would that tension be resolved? The fullness of sin in Israel, the fullness of God's promised deliverance. And the answer is Romans 8 Three, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. I mean, just think about this. This is incredible. Listen to me. You can never, 
You can never have the same life after you've processed and internalized what that verse is saying. So let's unpack it carefully. Paul says, the law was weakened by the flesh. This is why the law can't save, right? This is what Romans 7 taught us. Why? Because of the flesh. Now, the flesh refers to the material part of a person, but more often, and especially often in Paul, it refers to a person in their corruption by sin. So the flesh is a person in their slavery to sin. Remember what sin is. Sin is our human desire to say no to God and to his word and to his law so that a command from God actually provides fertile ground for sin to grow in us. If there was no sin in us, God's perfect law would do wonderful things in us. But therein lies the problem. How do we get sin out of us so that God's perfect law can do great things in us and lead us to life, which is what the law promises to do? So what did God do? He sent his own son. When Paul says his own son, he means God himself. God himself in the person of the son came to do the job, born out of Israel, the people of promise. That's what he came to do. And here we have the key phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh. How is God going to get sin out of us so that his law can do great things in us? He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul is very careful with his language here. He does not say God sent his son in sinful flesh. That would be a lie. Jesus had no sin. So God didn't send Jesus in sinful flesh, but rather in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus looks like a human, and all humans are in the flesh, that is, in the corruption of sin. Jesus was a human. And all humans are in the flesh, in the corruption of sin. But Jesus was never enslaved to sin. And so although he looked like a human and was a human, there was something fundamentally different in his nature. He had no sinful nature. Which means, among other things, that the law of God cannot be weakened in the flesh of Christ. It cannot. Sin cannot use the law to turn Christ against God, as it's done in every single human that's ever existed. There was no sin in him. I mean, just think. Just think of the delight that Jesus had in fully obeying his father, never murdering, never stealing, never lying, never looking lustfully at another human being, never coveting. God's perfect law and Christ's heart were perfectly aligned. And yet Jesus came in a human body because that's the battleground where sin took root. That's the battleground where sin took humanity captive. There's no sin in the air, right? There's no sin in the air. You don't catch sin when someone sneezes on you, right? All the sin of the world is contained in the seven plus billion people of the world. That's a lot of sin. 
And so Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. So not only did he take the form of those who are taken over by sin, he came to actually deal with that very sin. How? Read the last part of the same verse. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. God condemned sin. God did not condemn Jesus. Think about this. He condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. Mm. This is incredible. For sin to be dealt with once and for all, it couldn't simply be sentenced. It had to be executed. And that's what happened in the body of Jesus. And that's why there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because your sin, if you are in him, has been condemned in his flesh. Isaiah 53, right? Surely he has borne our grieves and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. It's as if God tricked sin with Jesus. Jesus infiltrated the world of sin, looked like those who bowed to sin, but then having no sin of his own in Jesus, God now had a vessel that could bear the sin of the world and deal it its deadly blow. God condemned our sin in the flesh, in the body of his son. And finally, in Christ, we walk by the Spirit. Look at verse 4. So, so he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so now that Paul has explained how sin was ruined in the body of Jesus, he now returns to the realm of the Spirit where those who belong to Christ live. Remember, our new location removes our condemnation. Our new location removes our condemnation. What do real estate and our salvation have in common? Location, location, location. That's a big deal, and a lot of Christians do not get this. You need to get this. So now I want you to look at verse 2 where Paul says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Do you see how Paul talks about the law of the spirit of life? Why would he use the word law when he's talking about the spirit? Why would he do that? Remember what chapter 7 was. Chapter 7 was all about the law of Moses and how it couldn't save. And so he's been, that's where he's been talking. He's been talking about the law, the law this, the law that. The law can give life, on and on. And so now as he gets into this chapter, it's as, as if he's doing a play on words. 
As if he's saying to us, everyone seeks salvation by law and it doesn't work. It doesn't save. Let me tell you about a different kind of law. Although really it's no law at all. It's the law of the spirit of life. In other words, there's a new way of fulfilling the requirements of God's law. But it's not by following a set of rules. And I feel for those of you that all you've known about the Christian faith is that. All you've known about the Christian faith is following these rules. These don'ts, these do's. Uh, that's not what it is. The new way of fulfilling the law of God is not by following a set of rules. But rather, as he tells us here in verse 4, is by walking according to the Spirit of God. And so here Paul gives us the difference between the only two locations that any human can inhabit. There's only two. In the flesh, or in Adam, as he said it before, or in the Spirit, in Christ. Those are the only two. And he gives us four differences between these two realms, these two locations. Uh, he t tells us of the mindset, the result, the posture and the ability. Look at them with me. The mindset is different. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The result is different. Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The posture toward God is different. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And the ability is different. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So someone who is in the flesh, still in Adam, sets their mind on the things of the flesh smells of death, is hostile to God, and is unable to please God. Listen, when people are in the flesh and they try to do religion, it is miserable. It is miserable for them, and it's miserable for the people they're around. Because their mindset is still in the flesh. They may come to church. Oh, but they wish they could be somewhere else. Or maybe they come 1.5 times a month or a couple of times if it fits with the rest of their schedule. They may give, but it's more as a token. It's like, yeah, I'll give a little bit to this thing. They may pray, but it's always self-interested. They care more about their lives going better than about God's kingdom coming to earth. And so they're still in the flesh supposedly following Jesus, but they've not changed locations. They're not in a new location. Listen. It's possible to do a ton of religion still in the flesh. The majority of the world is religious. You know this. The majority of the world is not secular like the West. The majority of the world has always been very religious up until today. But a lot of people are doing a lot of religion still in the flesh. And maybe that's all you've known about God, about Christianity. Maybe what you picked up from your family was just religion. You know, there's something you guys did once a week or maybe a prayer you said each day or whatever that may have been. But it's, it, was never, it was never your joy. 
It was never coming from your heart. And one of the things that's been so amazing over the last five and a half years here is just seeing person after person after person who had been around the Christian faith for a long time, but then they finally came alive to Christ and they're like, oh my goodness, they're reading the same scriptures, but everything looks different. You know why? Because it's not religion anymore. Now they're in a new location. They're with Christ. They're in Christ. They're in his spirit. You see, someone who's in the spirit, who has entered through that big, colorful banner of no condemnation, sets their mind on the things of the spirit, smells of life and peace, loves God from the heart, and is able to please God. Why? Because their minds are on they're set on the things of the Spirit of God. This is, guys, this is where freedom is. This is where life gets so good. This is where your marriage becomes sweet and tender. When you try to change your marriage by having all these laws, I'm not gonna do this, I'm not gonna do that, that, like that, that never works. This is where your marriage, as you're walking by the Spirit, becomes sweet and tender, and your parenting is present and full of joy, and your work is fulfilling and a way of serving others. It's not about you, it's not about your status, how much money you're gonna make, or this or that. It's about serving. This is where friendship becomes meaningful and rewarding. Are you there? Is this where you live? Children, here's the five words I want you to remember. Ready? Here's the five words I want you to talk with your parents about later today. Here they are. I wanna be in Christ. Those are the five words, children, that I want you to talk with your parents later about. I wanna be with Christ. Can you say them with me, children? Here we go. One, two, three. I wanna be with Christ. Yes, good. The five of you that said it's so good. That's awesome. I want you to talk to your parents later today about that. I want to be in Christ. What does that mean, mom and dad? Children, when your parents love each other and they hurt each other, but they come back to each other with sweetness and tenderness, and when they parent you with love and with truth, and they're there and with joy, and when they enjoy their work because they know that they are pleasing God through it and serving others, all of those are the things that Christ makes possible for us when we are in his spirit. You know, when someone who is in the spirit is wronged, they're not about crying foul or getting even. No, because their mind is set on the spirit. They're saying, how do I can still love this person who wronged me? How can I demonstrate patience and kindness to this person? How can I be a peacemaker in this sour situation? They know that God's glory is at stake and it matters to them how they represent him. So what's your location? What's your location? Are you in the flesh or in the spirit? Does your life smell of death? Or does it have the aroma of life and peace, the aroma of no condemnation? You see, the, the, the wonderful thing about the gospel is that if you belong to Christ, you don't have to wait until you stand before God to know the verdict of your life. That verdict has been brought forward into the present so that you already know that there will be no surprises on that day. This is the Protestant doctrine of assurance. The Protestant doctrine of assurance. This is precious. It should be precious to you. In Christ, no surprises on judgment day. 
That's what the doctrine is. You know, you already know. See, during the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s, and you need to know about this, okay? Ian prayed about it. If you're like, well, what, what, what is that? Google it. But you need to know about this. But during the Protestant Reformation, Catholic theologians found highly objectionable the doctrine of assurance. One of their main leaders said this, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. Assurance? A heresy? Why? Why would he say that? Why would he find assurance so loathsome? Because he thought that it promotes sin and lawlessness. You see what he's saying? What he's saying is, we need to keep people on their toes so that they never know whether they've done enough to please God, and that way they'll stay away from sin. Listen, that kind of thinking is all around you, and there's so much that's wrong, <laughs> so wrong with it. I mean, do you see how this view treats sin as something you're always going to want, but unfortunately you have to resist, rather than as something that you'll come to hate? as your love for Jesus opens your eyes to his matchless worth. This is night and day, church, night and day. Yes, you will stand on judgment day. You'll stand before God in the awesome presence of his glory. And all your sin will flash before your eyes. And for the very first time of your life, without excuse, you will see all its grime and evil and pride and pettiness and utter selfishness. And you'll brace yourself for the blow of the verdict you're about to hear. Tried, judged, sentenced, guilty as charged. Except that by your side, the Lord Jesus Christ stands. Hands, feet, and sides scarred from the wounds he took for you. And God the Father will speak to you with the finality of his reality-shaping word. There is therefore now no condemnation, now and forever, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, my beloved son, child, come into the joy of your father. I condemned your sin in the flesh of my son. There is nothing left for you to pay. I knew you on earth. And I saw you clinging to my son time after time until you finished the race. You fought the good fight. Come now into my presence. Church, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you're in. You're in. You're acquitted. There is no condemnation. There is nothing for you to fear. Judgment day for you will not be a trial. It will be in a word ceremony. Why? Because our new location in Christ removes for all eternity, for all eternity, our condemnation. It's done. Let's pray. Father, what else can we say? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. And so we say to you, praise the one who set me free. Death has lost its grip 
on me. God, you have done what the law, weakened by the flesh, by our corruption, by sin, could not do. By sending your own son, you did not send a prophet, you did not send an angel, you did not send another human. You yourself, in the person of your son, came to do the job in the likeness of sinful flesh, but without sin. Jesus, you came so that sin could be condemned, executed, so that my sin could be born in the flesh because it is human flesh that sin has taken captive. Thank you. Thank you, dear God. And thank you for giving us the spirit of life that sets us free, the spirit that that applies to all of us what you accomplished, the payment for sin, the conquering of death, the fulfillment of all the righteous requirements of the law that none of us could ever fulfill. Jesus, you did all of that to take us from that no man's land of law, sin, and death and usher us into the wonderland of Christ, the Spirit, and life where the force of your gospel is unstoppable. We love you. We praise you. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who's only known religion in the flesh. Oh, God, please grant them to cling to Christ. Please grant them to come out of that deadly place and enter into the light. Give them a new location in Christ. Make them your children, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.